Back in August of 2015, the famous poll pundit Nate Silver was giving Donald Trump a 2% chance of winning the Republican nomination. But Scott Adams, best known as the cartoonist behind Dilbert, saw something else. Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. Based on Trump's persuasion techniques, Scott Adams said Trump would win the nomination and then go on to win the presidency. Thus began Adams' life as a political pundit and Trump supporter. Adams is more than a cartoonist. He holds an MBA from Berkeley and has published several books, most recently, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. Adams, who doesn't vote himself and mostly steers clear of politics, says he's an expert on hypnotism and on persuasion, and those are the qualities he likes in Trump. Like many Trump supporters, he's been critical of the media and of social media companies for what he says is bias against the president. Scott Adams, thanks for coming on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I get to start with sort of a strange question. Uh, This is based off of a spicy tweet. Donald Trump will be the last human president. Yeah, so we will elect more presidents and they will be human, but this might be the last a few years in which a human actually has control over the big decisions. And what I mean by that is that the big tech companies have refined their their uh, persuasion that's built into their algorithms to a point where they really control what happens. But it's worse than that because it's not even people controlling it because the algorithms have uh, become complex. And once you reach a certain level of complexity... Even the people who are coding them don't know exactly what happens when you tweak a variable. They know they are tweaking things. They might know that they're trying to create some impact or another. But probably there will be nobody who can uh, make a human decision as a president uh, in the future without, you know, without violating what the tech companies have decided is the appropriate line of action. So in other words, the chain of cause and effect is that there are people making decisions at the tech companies, the, the Googles and Twitters and Facebooks, etc. Those decisions get turned into algorithms. And once they're turned into algorithms, the humans no longer really understand them. President Trump is unique in that his persuasion skills are greater than the tech companies. It's probably the only reason he got elected. I can imagine no one else who would have beat uh, Hillary Clinton. So after him, I think if you get an ordinary politician, and it doesn't matter which party they're in, uh, the algorithm will push the voters, and the voters will push the politicians, and everybody will think they had free will. They will think they made up their own mind. They will think they did their own research and came up to with independent decisions, but we're no longer in that world. So I think President Trump will be the last pure human leader. Every, everything after this will be a human, and he will be elected, he or she, uh, but the decisions will really come from the algorithm after that. You've expressed a lot of concern about the tech companies being too liberal. Why should we be concerned about the people if, if it's a machine that's running things? Well, originally, the people create the algorithms, and they certainly can tell if they move a particular variable. Well, if I move this variable, that will probably have this kind of effect. But I think you start with the people understanding the algorithm and maybe applying their bias, even if they don't think they're doing it. You know, people are uh, biased creatures. So even if your intention is not to put any bias into the algorithm, 
you can't really avoid it. That's not really a thing because there, there are just too many gray areas where you have to make a decision. This algorithm idea, I feel like it kind of worked in Donald Trump's favor this last election cycle. Why does this necessarily be a liberal outcome? Well, that's not so much the algorithm that you're talking about. It's his ability to capture attention. Uh, for those listening who don't know, I'm a trained hypnotist, and I've been studying persuasion in all its forms for decades. I wrote a book about it called Win Bigly. Um, and what President Trump can do that almost nobody else can do is absolutely dominate our attention. And he can dominate everybody's attention, and he can do it on a, on a global scale. Um, maybe somebody will come along who can do that. But I've got a feeling that the tech companies are already adjusting their approach to minimize a future Donald Trump-like character. So there's been a lot of examples, mostly anecdotal, that people have brought in the last couple of weeks about bias at Twitter, bias at Facebook. Do those things bother you? Well, I just watched the uh, Google internal video that was, uh, I guess, some mole released showing, uh, must have been within the week after the 2016 election, where the Google uh, management was talking about how sad they were and how tragic it was that Donald Trump got elected. Now, it doesn't surprise me to see somebody have a strong opinion on politics, especially uh, lately. So nothing about that was unusual. What was unusual is that it was an all-hands meeting with a huge auditorium fil filled with Google employees a whole bunch of senior management, several of them, and they talked as if there could be nobody in the room who could have possibly been a Trump supporter. So there was a casualness to the bias that was shocking in a way, and I hate to make this analogy, but I've got a feeling that you know every major dictator who did something terrible, you know, whether it's the Holocaust or something else, I feel like there was a meeting like that it, just in tone, you know, I'm not making any kind of exact analogy here. But I, fe I felt the same horror about the normalness of it. Because what they were talking about was that the people who were Trump supporters, by implication, they didn't say this directly, but the implication of the context was that there was something terribly wrong with them. And that that they were a menace to the country and maybe a threat to the people in that room. And they they talked about how they could do better in the future, as if they allowed him somehow to get uh, elected, and it felt like a mistake that the tech companies had somehow made, at least in some some fashion, that could have helped him get elected. Um, presumably, the, in the future, they would try to uh, clamp down on what they considered fake news, but maybe 40% of the country thinks is real news. Um, and I was imagining there had to be at least one Trump supporter in that room who was probably very underground. And I wonder how they felt. How did they feel watching all these people talking about them as if it's just a given? Well, they probably they probably leaked the tape. It was probably the person who leaked the tape, right? <laughs> Do you think there has to be a government fix to this? I don't know if it's possible. That's the problem. And I haven't heard anybody talk about that question. Uh, Jack Dorsey sort of indirectly hinted in that in that area because when he was answering questions uh, in front of the Congress, whoever he was talking to, the the group um, 
that he was testifying to, he was talking about how, how complicated it is and how they're working on it and they need outside help and third parties. And you start getting a sense of the complexity. And it may be the sort of thing where there's, it's a logical impossibility. In other words, no, no matter how hard you try, maybe you can never avoid bias. Let me give you an example. It is my opinion that there's nothing you could do, by analogy, to the tax code that wouldn't be racist. No matter how you raise it, change it, tweak it, because, uh, because society has sort of self-selected or by, because of history, people are in different pockets of whatever. Any change you make that's a big change will affect some group more than another. And that might not be the reason you made the change, but any big change is going to be uh, either harder on poor people, which might skew more toward a certain you know ethnic groups. Uh, it might be better for rich people, which would skew toward a different ethnic group. But everything that's big is biased. And I think we have to accept the fact that that may just be our world, that bias can't be avoided. Maybe the only thing you can do is make sure that there are competing biases, which would be a horrible world because it looks like what we have now, right? With the two silos, you know, the left and the right. But that might be, and this is the saddest part, the best we can do. Because I can't imagine the scenario where the government goes in and says, hey, we're, we're the government, we're here to help. Let us help you on your complicated you know, algorithms that change every day and have hundreds of variables. I mean, there's just no way anything like that could work. You said earlier that one of the fake news problems might be that 30 or 40% of Americans believe something um, which Facebook would not say is real news. It, can't we objectively come to a conclusion about what fake news is or isn't? Apparently not, because we're watching a case where, was it the National Review, I may have my facts wrong here, uh, was part of the team that Facebook recently uh, you know, brought on to help them determine the fake news on the other side. So you, you want sort of opposing voices so that either side can say, well, the other side is fake news and here's our, here's our evidence why it's fake. And if you see the level of disagreement on what is a fact... You think to yourself, well, a fact's a fact. You know, when you get back to the source, it's a fact. But you end up with things like, what did the word said really mean in this context? And the case I'm talking about a lot, uh, a lot seem to hinge on how people interpret the word said. So how can you ever agree when things are going to be just naturally this gray? Let me make a counter argument there, and that is that's obviously a sticky situation, and it's one that's probably worth talking about. I would say that that conversation is healthy, and that's one of the ways that we collectively decide what's true and what's not true. And I would also say that there's a whole category of things which are just lies and probably shouldn't be spread on platforms and given the same way that they're that true things are. In a perfect world, yes, but we don't live in that world. Let me let me give you some more examples. Let's say uh, let's say the president says, oh, "My crowd is huge. My rally crowd. I've got. I must have thirty thousand people here." And then we find out it's twenty five. And let's say we find out we know it's twenty five. It's totally twenty five. Is that fake? Is that a lie? 
Should Facebook demote that, or is that close enough? I'd say there's a point where it becomes a lie. I mean, there's still a basic number there, and you can have people make a judgment about that number. And if someone says something about that number which isn't true, that means it's not true. But would you demote it so that fewer people see that message? And if you would demote it because the truth is 25,000 and he said 30,000, would you demote it if he said 29,000? So in other words, there's just no way for us, for you know, we humans, to have a rule that's just the rule. It's like, well, you know it when you see it. Everybody knows what a fake fact is. False. Everybody does not know what a fake fact is. So we're trying to solve the problem with more of the problem. In other words, two smart people who have access to all the same information will have a different opinion of what the truth was. So we're trying to solve that by adding two more smart people who have a completely different opinion of what the information is telling them. I think I agree with you, and yet where I break with you is that that conversation isn't worth having. I, I think this isn't a new problem, and this is something that probably humanity's dealt with forever. How do we get on a collective reality? And we do it by talking about things and eliminating things which are obviously false from our day-to-day -day narratives. But that's the problem. What you think is obviously false, I think, is obviously true. Take, for example, that you just said, well, we're, tr we're trying to get to sort of a common reality. My world doesn't believe that that's possible or even worth trying in most cases because we just live in completely different realities. You might get to good decisions. You might find a process that is more forgiving for your mistakes, science being a perfect example, and capitalism is a perfect example. Capitalism works even though 90% of businesses fail. So capitalism is really good at dealing with imperfections. Science, same thing. You can have a lot, of, a lot of stuff you can get wrong. It only matters that you get some of it right, and then the right stuff stays around. So how could we do something that's system-wise as good uh, for social media and for the truth? Um, and that's tough. Nobody's, nobody has suggested anything yet that I've seen. The closest I could come, if I had to make a suggestion here, is to let people see everything, but to simultaneously show it with other people's opinion overlaid. So the name of your last book was Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. Do you think facts don't matter? So when I say facts don't matter, I'm talking about um, two decisions. To outcomes, the facts are all that matter. And so if you walk in front of a truck and the truck hits you, you're dead, that's a fact and that probably matters. So yeah, the outcome of facts matters completely. But the reality is that people believe they see their own facts, and so the real facts really don't matter. If you look at, for example, there's some number about the number of factual inaccuracies President Trump has committed, and I think it's over 3,000 since inauguration, something like that. But if I were to say to you, okay, now what went wrong because of that. Is the GDP lower? Probably not. Is North Korea treating us differently? Probably not. Is Putin doing something because the president got called out for a factual error? Probably not, because that's, you know, his entire world is managing through factual errors. So if you're actually trying to find any 
discrete thing where there's a problem, you could find that maybe in news coverage. Let's say if somebody got blamed for something they didn't do, that could be pretty bad. And, you know, we see examples of that. But they're really the exceptions. Um, you know, take uh, climate change. Do the facts matter? Well, they certainly matter to the outcome. And smart people would argue the entire world could be destroyed if, you know, if we don't act in a certain way by a certain time. But people don't agree on those facts. They don't agree that the models are really what they say they are. They might agree on the basic science, as I do. <clears throat> but they don't necessarily believe that models are science, because they're not. You know, a model is something scientists do, but it's not science per se, um, in my opinion. So I, I don't think you can ever get to the point where on the big decisions people do agree on the facts, even if the facts are, in your opinion, as clear as they could be, and even if it would be easy to research, even if it's easy to check. I mean, the people still don't agree on you know, Obama's birth certificate. There, there is no amount of work you can do to get everybody to agree on even the simplest facts. But th that's the perfect example for me, Obama's birth certificate, because that's a fact. He was, he was born in Hawaii and that happened. It doesn't matter how many people. It doesn't matter how many people don't believe that. Oh, hold on. The whole world that, could not believe that, and it could still be true. No, but that's not an evidence. What we have in evidence is that he has a valid um, birth certificate. So, so that part is the part that everybody now agrees on. There is a birth certificate. It does show him born in this country. Does that cover every possibility? No, no, it doesn't. So there are people who are going to say, well, you know, sure, it's a valid birth certificate, but maybe you got put in there after the fact. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe he was born on a ship at sea, and when they landed, they just took the newborn baby to the nearest hospital. I'm not saying any of that happened. I'm saying that as long as somebody can concoct a story in their mind that allows them to be right about their initial opinion, they're going to do it. People don't look at new information and say, oh, okay, that's the new information. I'll, I'll change my mind now. What they do is they look at the new information and t they tell you why it's wrong, <laughs> no matter how right it is. They're going to say, no, that looks, like, uh, that looks like there's something wrong with that birth certificate. There's something irregular there, uh, which some people say is, is the truth. But it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, it is either a thing or not a thing. It doesn't matter how many people disbelieve something that is true. It's still true. Well, I'm saying that um, the truth matters to our outcomes. But there are plenty of people who, who will concoct their own truth. I think innately I have more faith in people than you do. And I think... That's totally, my, totally misplaced fact, but go ahead. Part of my <laughs> profession... It requires the belief that if I find out what is true and what is not true, and I can give that to people in a way which I feel is unbiased, and yes, there's an asterisk on that word no matter who says it, that they can make decisions about their lives and about the world, and even in a bigger sense, they can make decisions with their neighbors and live in the same place even though we aren't in each other's heads you're describing an ideal which i share 
which is uh, I certainly want people like you to keep doing what you're doing, to think exactly the way you're thinking, to attempt to get the best information, to get it to the people. I want you to do that as hard as you possibly can. What I'm telling you is that the outcome will be barely <laughs> barely effective in terms of changing people to rational creatures. Um, it's just something that can't happen and doesn't happen. So, Scott, where does this leave us, and where do you think we need to go? Well, I think the only thing you can say that's productive is that we need to try harder and focus harder on it. The The one good thing I'll say about humans is that when we can see a problem developing and we see it from a long ways away, we're really creative at figuring out how to get there. So the fact that I can't think of any way to solve, let's say, how the tech giants handle uh, bias doesn't mean it can't be done. And it's probably not just hey, let's try to be less biased or have somebody watch me so I'm less biased. There's probably some kind of a competitive system that will be an analog to capitalism or an analog to the way the scientific process works that we just need to use for conversation. I don't think anybody's invented that yet, but I think that's where it goes. So uh, I have competing thoughts. One is I can't imagine any way bias can be removed, and if we can't remove it, the algorithms eventually run the world. But on the other hand, we've been really good as humans. We figured out Y2K. We figured out how not to run out of food, figured out how not to run out of you know fuel. Um, we've not nuked each other lately. You know, there, there are a lot of things that uh, we're good at figuring out. So I'm optimistic that we can find a good solution. However, if we don't, AI and algorithms will be running the show. But here's the thing. I don't know if that's going to be worse. It might be better. In fact, if I had to guess, if I had to put a bet down, say probably three to one, AI running the show for us will be a better outcome for humans. All right. Scott Adams, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Bouts. Thanks for having me. That's it for Bots and Bouts this week from Yahoo News. I just wanted to mention a few days after this interview, Scott Adams was in the news because of a family tragedy. His stepson died of an overdose. I want to offer my sympathy for what Scott and his family are going through. In America, shockingly, you're more likely to die of an overdose than by guns or in a car accident. Overdoses are truly an epidemic. Thank you to Scott for the interview and to my producer, Leah Hitchens. You can find me on Twitter at GrantEB. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Burningham.